you have an expression, I think, from our friend. What was it? The toilet drop <laughs> challenge? Or- <laughs> toilet trust fall? <laughs> toilet trust fall. When you're so sore, you yes. can't physically lower your body. You got to kind of do that. Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Yana, and today I'm speaking with someone who inspired me to take up strength training again. Steph Godreau helps athletic women over 40 fuel themselves better, get stronger, increase their energy, and perform better in the gym. She's a sports nutritionist and lifting coach trained in biology and human physiology and a nutritional therapy practitioner, certified intuitive eating counselor, and USA weightlifting sports performance coach. One note for listeners though, I want to apologize for my audio on this episode. We've done our best to minimize the issues, but you may hear some distortions on my part. That said, what Steph has to say is absolutely worth listening to. And you may be surprised and delighted to hear what she has to say about pushing through your perceived limits, building resilience and strength in your 40s and beyond, why you might need to eat more to get the results you're after, and the notorious toilet trust fall. And with that, I bring you Steph Godreau. Steph, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of your podcast, Feel Your Strength. And I understand this year you reached over 4 million downloads. (laughs) So you have quite a following. And actually, that's how I found you, which is through my sister, Marika, who is also a fan. When I first listened to your podcast a few months ago, it inspired me to get back into heavy strength training. I'd avoided it for a little while because I'd been injured. So let's talk about your mission and your passion. What lies at the heart of what you do? Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you uh, for the congrats. You know, I always try to be transparent and tell people I've been podcasting since 2015. So it's taken a while to get to that level of downloads, but it's truly a joy and a pleasure. And I'm so glad that uh, your sister told you about the show. And I hear this all the time. I think that's the thing I love about podcasting is the ability to connect. And and that's just always so great. So I am a sports nutritionist and strength training coach. My previous career, though, was as a high school science teacher. So I did that for 12 years. And I left the classroom in 2013 to really start an online business. At the time, I was really focusing on recipes, but I was still at that point strength training. I found the gym and and really lifting heavy weights in 2010. And it really did change my life. And it inspired me to try something new in my own career and to sort of like go on this mission to share how powerful strength training is for women. Because no one ever told me about it. You know, no one ever presented it in that way. I came from the endurance sports world. I've been an athlete really since I was a kid and, but really never learned how to lift weights and um, came from the world of endurance mountain biking. I was a cyclist for a long time. And, you know, my sport was always, you know, I wanted to win races, but I also wanted to be the thinnest I could possibly be the lightest I could possibly be. And I kind of came around to the idea that, you know what? <laughs> I really want to be strong, actually. Um, and I love the the way that strength training has the potential to expand our lives and how being strong has that that potential as well. And I think that's really what my mission is, is to help other women 
to discover and further that that love and and use strength training as as a catalyst really to expand their lives. Absolutely. And I think what's so interesting about your story is I think a lot of women are going to relate to the idea that with endurance training, if you're lighter, you're faster. If you're smaller, you're more competitive. So it's very easy to get into the mindset that less is more. And of course, it aligns to some of the problematic thinking and behaviors we already have in our culture around women's bodies and that smaller and skinnier is better. Um, so talk a little bit, if you if you don't mind, about how this mindset, this shift towards strength training and power and resilience affected you psychologically? Because I found that was incredibly inspiring listening to you. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I these are always easy to connect the dots going, you know, looking back to, to paraphrase Steve Jobs, right? Um, <laughs> but, but it truly was something I experienced pretty much in real time when I first joined that gym. I was still racing bikes and I did the two concurrently for a little bit. And I actually saw an interesting benefit when I was still racing. I was like, whoa, I got a lot faster. You know, I've been training for years. So it's not like I was, I was new and experiencing novice gains in my cycling. And I just thought, you know, if, if that sort of thing had the power to, <laughs> to blow up how I was thinking about my, my, my body and what I could do and racing and my achievement, you know, I think I found that focusing on strength allowed me to, it, it gave me the space to experience and conceptualize of myself and in a way that was different from being in the endurance world, like you said, where the power to weight ratio is very prized and just trying to be um, smaller no matter what. And I think things are changing there, luckily. However, it's still pretty pervasive. And I think for me, I was like, oh, this is really interesting because I can also focus on how I want to feel, how I want to show up. I want to feel strong and powerful. I want to show up as somebody who is uh, trying new things. And I was sort of blowing my own mind. I was like, wow, if I, <laughs> I never thought I could lift this and I just did it, what else have I been believing that I can't, I can't do or experience or, or feel in the world? And you know, I, I'm always really careful too to say that we have to be careful about replacing, you know, for example, our weight on the scale with feeling like we're worthy because we can do a certain thing or lift a certain weight, or we don't want to just substitute that form of self worth for another um, in terms of performance. But I think for me, it was a stepping stone toward more unconditional self worth as just a person getting to explore other parts of who I was. So one of the things that came out of it, you were talking about psychologically, is I, at that point, had the confidence to ask for a leave of absence from my job. Wow. So that was part of the decision. I hadn't realized that. It was It was part of the decision. And I, again, this, this was a, a two or three year process. But I slowly started to expand my own horizons and think, you know, and, and I love Education runs deeply in my family. So many of my friends and family are educators, and I think it is such an important job. Um, but I just started to think, what if this, you know, what if there's something different that I want to try? What if I want to reach outside the four walls of, of this classroom that I've been in? And could I do that? And I was like, well, I mean, I've been 
showing myself that things I never thought I could do. Never in my life did I think I could do a pull-up. I never thought I was strong. And so you, you accumulate these little like, oh, okay, maybe I can do it. And so the self-confidence and self-efficacy, um, which is, is very well documented, you know, self-efficacy is, is something that's very well documented from things like physical pursuits and, and strength training. And, um, you know, that was really, really powerful. And, and I see that playing out with my students and, and my clients in my community all the time. And do you feel like that's a very physical experience that it can't just be taught in a theoretical way? People have to actually experience breaking through those barriers, not necessarily lifting the heaviest weight ever, but understanding they're capable of more physically than they might have believed. Yes. And I think it's just different in, it's different compared to something like running a marathon, which I've done. Um, I never had a doubt that I could run a marathon. I just thought, well, is something I have to train for. I kind of want to prove it to myself that I can do it. But I never had that deep-seated doubt. Whereas I did have deep-seated doubt, and I see this with so many women because we've been socialized mm-hmm. to believe that we are not strong enough, even though we do so many strong things. And I think when we have that narrative playing in the background and that has shaped our self-belief, it is, and for me, again, it was super, super powerful to have that literal, like, oh my gosh, again, for 30 years, I never thought that I could be strong enough to do this or that. And, and to have that experience of what it was like, um, kind of is like this primal thing in your brain. It's hard to explain. <laughs> um, but it's just, it's sort of like realizing that the societal limitations that are often put on women, especially, what if we bust through that? What, uh, what is on the other side of that? And, and to have that very crystallized moment. And I'm sure for other people, there are other experiences for them that represent similar things. Um, I just happened to see it with picking up a barbell. <laughs> um, <laughs> was one of the ways that it came through. I totally relate to that. The first time I did strength training, I was a teenager. I went to the local Y and I always hated sports. I just thought team sports, I don't understand them. I get bored. I'm not very coordinated. And the first time I started lifting heavy weights, something just clicked for me. And I thought, I just need to do this more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is me. Yeah. And I had an ongoing relationship with strength training for the last, you know, 20, 20 odd years. And sometimes it was stronger than others with injuries and whatnot. But what I want to emphasize for listeners today is something that I think a lot of women will say, that, you know, as a barrier, they'll say, well, it's too late. I've, I'm a runner, I'm a biker, but I don't really feel comfortable getting into a strength training program because it's too late for me. You know, that's, that's for younger people. What would you say to somebody with that mindset? But they're still curious. They're still open to it. Yeah. I recently did a, did a masterclass and I was looking up examples of women in old, you know, in their older years. And what I would say is like even over 60. So these were women in their 70s, 80s, 90s who started strength training at that age. <laughs> wow. And I pulled some of their pictures. Ernestine Shepard is one that comes to mind. She's a very famous bodybuilder who until very recently was competing. And she's in her mid-80s. Amazing. There's also another lady in Florida and her name escapes me. I can look it up and send it to you if you want to um, put, put her name in the show notes. She 
didn't start powerlifting until she was in her early 90s, I believe, 91. Oh my and gosh. she just broke a Guinness Book of World Records record at age 100. Wow. And let me tell you what, her deadlift is like, <laughs> it's good. You know, it's <laughs> like, it's incredible, um, you know, what she's, what she's doing and she's like having so much fun. And so I think the thing I would say is I understand why we think it's too late. Mm-hmm. So you're, if you think that, like, it makes sense because, again, we're constantly being told, like, we're we're limited or it's too late. You know, we should have started 20 years ago. I always say the next best time is right now. And, you know, on the technical side of things, we're able to continue building muscle. We don't stop being able to build muscle. Mm-hmm. We don't stop being able to build strength. And that's, you know, again, uh, from the from the research, it's like we can continue to do that. We can continue to stop bone loss. We can even continue building bone. Maybe expand on that because I think yeah. that's one of the primary drivers for why people should get interested in this if they haven't already been. Yeah. It is fundamental to mobility and independence as you age to have strong muscles that can lift you, that can carry you, that can balance you. Maybe you want to say a few things about that. A hundred percent. It's so important. And I understand, again, we're a very aesthetics-driven society, right? We want to look a certain way. We feel like there's value, right? There's beauty standards, body standards. A lot of them are highly unrealistic and, and very problematic. So a lot of times we just focus on the outside and what the outside looks like. And the reality is, is that muscle is an organ of longevity. And as far as women are concerned, well, we all start losing bone density and we all start losing muscle mass once we're roughly in our 30s. We, it's just natural sort of aging progression. We also become more uh, anabolic resistant. It's just a little bit harder to build muscle. And of course, you know, females having our estrogen levels eventually dropping off and, and, and declining significantly Postmenopause, we have that additional, I guess, acceleration of muscle mass loss that's called sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. And we have the loss of bone density, which is osteopenia and then into osteoporosis. And the reality is, especially for women, that once we are in our 60s, if we break a bone, particularly a hip bone, the likelihood of mortality within six months of a hip break for women is one in two. Ooh, that's scary. It, it's like really serious. And so I think I say that not to be depressing or sad, but rather just to say like, hey, the good thing is we can do a lot of really impactful things to try to increase our muscle mass, to increase our bone density. So that, yes, to your point, we have better function. We have longevity. Again, muscle um, is also like a really amazing source of uh of storing carbohydrate for us. So if we're concerned about things like insulin resistance and we're trying to improve insulin sensitivity and metabolic health as we age, not just moving around and doing the things that we love to do, um, you know, there's some really significant benefits to getting in there, doing a couple of resistance training workouts a week. It doesn't have, you don't have to become a competitive bodybuilder. <laughs> you know, you don't, <laughs> don't have to become a competitive power lifter, but something that's really strengthening and challenging the muscle the bone to grow, to uh, give it that that positive stressor. And then we recover from that and we, we adapt. That's how physical training works. 
So it doesn't mean that you're going to get in there right away the first day and you're going to lift something that looks like heavy and scary. We have we want to follow progressive overload and really smart uh, risk mitigating strategies for lifting. Um, but ultimately, you know, it it is a quality of life issue. It is a longevity issue. And women do have some, have a little bit more of a hurdle in, in there in terms of the estrogen loss that we experience because of natural aging and, and then going through the menopause transition. However, again, it's a lot of positive things we can do without resistance training, making sure we get enough protein. Uh, we're getting our, we're getting some impact on our bones um, so that they have the stimulus to grow and strengthen as well. So it's not too late. There's a lot we can do. Um, we just need those right ingredients. Yes. And speaking of ingredients, I think <laughs> one of the most important topics that you've raised, and there's several episodes about this that I'll link to in the show notes, is fueling. I think what you say when you talk about fueling for strength is specifically appropriate for women who tend to undereat or they're not aware of the impact of how certain ingredients might actually dampen our appetite and satiety. So, for example, you talk about how coffee, um, a lot of people just have a coffee in the morning, and you yourself mentioned you used to have a coffee in the morning, and then that was it. And coffee's great if you want to get fired up and go, but it's not caloric. There's no fuel. There's no macronutrients, and it's not going to be enough to sustain performance. Um, similarly with protein, you talk a little bit about how that really helps with satiety. But unfortunately, if you're eating large amounts of protein and you're not used to that, you might end up under eating other nutrients because the protein fills you up. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this because mm -hmm. it has made an enormous difference to me. I was practicing intermittent fasting before I heard your episode specifically about how problematic that can be for women and how it can actually raise cortisol levels. Um, and I feel like a different person after oh. I start eating breakfast again. <laughs> so I, I, love that. I, I cannot emphasize enough what a difference eating for performance and simply eating for athletic activities can mm -hmm. make. Yeah. Oh, it, I mean, yes. <laughs> like we could we could go down so many different routes here. I think the biggest thing is that it's easy. Well, first of all, a lot of us learned about nutrition, and I'm using air quotes, <laughs> heavy air quotes. So you can't see me. Is from dieting. Yeah. Right. We we were not explicitly taught or told. Um, really, like what are some well, some solid evidence based science backed you know, stands the test of time for the most part, like ideas, even the idea of variety, right, gets really lost in 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 the sea of, of social media these days and what we were we were taught growing mm -hmm. up. I mean... And you and I are from the Snackwell's generation, the snack low-fat well, obsession. <laughs> Snackwell's special K diet, yeah. you know, um, at slim fast, those sorts of things. We we lived through it. We saw our, our moms and grandmas and aunties and our friends' parents doing that sort of stuff too. So we've all, oh, we've seen a lot. Uh, we also lived through, you know, being in high school in the 90s and the ultra thin supermodels. And I mean, just so much we've, we've seen. So I think, you know, first of all, acknowledging that it's okay if you're like, I just didn't know. Because again, most people here don't have a nutrition degree or credential. And we learned a lot of stuff from popular culture that wasn't very useful or very supportive in terms of diet. So 
I just kind of caveat that right off the bat because I, I want people to come into it feeling like, oh, you know, it's okay if I don't know what I don't know, but I can always do better. And, you know, nutrition does sound simple. We're like we've been eating since we were born. And at the same time, the world likes to simplify ideas such as eat less, move more, which on the surface for some parts of the population might be generalized advice that's useful. However, when we really get down into the nitty gritty, we also know that under eating puts us at risk for things like red S, which is relative energy deficiency or relative energy deficiency in sports. Mm -hmm. That athletes or athletic people are no less prone to things like disordered eating and eating disorders. They're actually more prone than the general population because of the added pressures of performance and maintaining a weight, maintaining yeah. aesthetics, weight weight-based sports, etc. So there's a lot going on here. And I think the biggest thing that I see is this. Well, there's a couple things. First, again, the low energy availability piece, which a lot of us were, were just came from the decades of just eat as little as possible. Yeah. Just eat less, eat less. And yes, we need to strike a bit more of a balance between energy intake and energy output, but also there are some metabolic processes that go on subconsciously or behind the scenes that we, we don't have as much conscious control of. So for example, if our daily energy expenditure is composed of mainly our basal metabolic rate, which is our body keeping itself alive, if we were laying horizontal <laughs> all day, right? We're not doing anything, any movement. Yeah. We have that, which is a, the, the biggest chunk of our energy expenditure every day goes to basic bodily functions. We have our purposeful activity, which would be our you know intentional exercise. We have all of the other motions that we're doing. Like I'm shaking my head now. I'm gesticulating. I'm <laughs> walking to the kitchen. I'm raising a fork to my mouth, you know, puttering around those sorts of things. Uh, fidgeting is a big one for people as well. And that uses energy. And then we also have our um, thermic effect of food, which is it, it costs energy to digest what we're eating. That's right. So, um, you know, we, we need to strike a bit more of a balance. And it doesn't mean that a caloric deficit couldn't be undertaken in a very smart and controlled way. But the way that most people do it, especially athletic women, is they just try to come right off the top and just slash a bunch of calories, a bunch of energy. And then we need to either prop our energy up with caffeine. Again, I love my coffee. Don't come for me. Um, <laughs> but it's not food energy, to your point. It's a stimulant. You know, we see people, because of their schedules and things are just really busy, um, work environments are not conducive to taking breaks. I mean, this is just like basic stuff. But mm -hmm. sometimes people don't eat meals um, and they go and train. And so they end up in this state of low energy availability, which means... When you subtract out the energy that was used for activity, exercise, and movement, there's not enough energy left over to run your basic bodily function. This is your nervous system. This is your digestive system. This is your reproductive system, right? All of these things. And then when that reaches sort of a critical threshold and it's gone on long enough, this is where we have that risk factor for red S, which is the syndrome of things that include what we learned growing up as the female athlete triad. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, right? I remember Which, that term. Right. So that's bone density issues, including osteopenia and osteoporosis. Um, that is reproductive issues, right? So in some cases, loss of the menstrual cycle, uh, loss of ovulation, right? So some kind of amenorrhea of some sort. Um, and the third element of that is disordered eating or eating disorder. Yeah. But 
the reality is now this, uh, the idea of red S encompasses female athlete triad, but includes all of these other factors, your, your immune system, your psychological health, um, your performance. Obviously, we're talking about things like athletics and performance here, but it, it goes beyond just what we think about in terms of things like weight management or weight maintenance. So there are a lot of things that we need to consider. And this is why this blanket idea of just eat less, move more misses the nuance in these conversations. And to your point, you know, some very popular you know, eating strategies, or we could call them diets, whatever we want to call them. Yes, if you're trying to eat a whole day worth of protein in a very short amount of time, protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And so you actually can sort of self-limit the amount that you can eat because you start to feel very full. You know, sports nutrition research shows us that actually spreading our protein out throughout the day is going to give us the best shot at maintaining our muscle mass through muscle protein synthesis and having that exceed muscle protein breakdown rates. Um, if we do go and lift and we train, not waiting six more hours until we eat, because when we train, when we've lifted weights, for example, we are in a breakdown state. We are in a cata uh, catabolism or catabolic state. And how do we get out of that breakdown state to a building state is we put amino acids into the system in terms of the protein that we eat. So having a more steady supply of that can really be useful, especially as we are women in our 40s aging, going through um, the normal aging process, plus perimenopause and, and then postmenopause, where it, it's harder to have that anabolic signal. Estrogen is an anabolic driver of muscle growth. And so we need to introduce the mechanical tension, the mechanical resistance from resistance training and provide the nutrient, the, the essential amino acid, especially for muscle protein synthesis. So it, it's kind of putting everything together and, and structuring it in a way that is something that we can maintain. We're also making sure that, to your point, we're not just uh, trying to get all of our food in one big sitting, especially at, at night, which is where a lot of women try to backfill the day and then just can't eat as yeah. much as they need. And going back to protein specifically, I think you have at least one episode about just protein, maybe several that get into other yeah. details, but I think it's <laughs> mind-blowing that the recommended intake just to sustain muscle mass, what is it? Is it 1.4 grams per pound of body weight? Is that correct? So the general guidelines now for for the gen pop, and this includes sort of like um, men, women, like everybody not specifically doing resistance training or interested in building muscle is somewhere between 1.2 okay. to 2 yeah. grams per kilogram of body weight. Per kilogram. Thanks okay. for correcting. Yeah. yeah. So if we turn that into pound, uh, because if we're using pound units... What we're looking at is going to be like at the at the higher end, somewhere around one gram for a pound of body weight, mm -hmm. and it could go down from there. However, for active women, the research seems to suggest somewhere in that 1.6 to 2.0 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight a day. So we're looking at a slightly higher intake. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the RDA for protein, at least in the United States, has been quite low. It, um, it's a smaller number. And there's been some push in recent years to get that number elevated more to that 1.2 basement level for the general population that's sedentary because of the effect of sarcopenia or muscle loss over time. 
And because we become more anabolically resistant to building muscle over time, so it's often believed that older individuals, because they're not maybe quite as active, need less protein, but we actually have more muscle protein lost over time. Right. And it's harder in some cases to digest certain proteins because our digestive systems can kind of like slow down, lose the, you know, lose the enzymatic functioning or the strength of enzymatic functioning to digest. So um, it's, it's one of those things that's so, so common is to push the protein lower. And sometimes, again, it's not intentional, but it's like, oh, I need to have something prepared or have something on hand. And there's just a lot of, I guess I would say, confusion about what that looks like. And I'll say if you're a higher body weight individual, you know, sometimes you can start a little bit lower on that range. But just looking at getting a, a decent source of protein in as many meals and snacks as you possibly can as a starting point, because yeah, that can have a, a really, a really big effect on recovery, on your your sort of like appetite uh, management, satiety, those sorts of things. And one of the things I fall prey to is turning to processed quote-unquote, protein foods like protein bars and protein chips and snacks because I know that protein's important and sometimes I'm on the go and I think, well, you know, it's it's better than regular chips or a chocolate bar. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something a lot of your clients run into problems with where maybe they're eating more processed protein foods that aren't really going to give them the same value? I think when it comes to protein quality, we want to look at a couple things. The first thing is what we're doing most of the time, knowing that it's never going to be perfect. And that's not the goal. Right. Because the last thing we want to do is to move from a dietary paradigm of restriction and perfection to another one of perfection and those sorts of unrealistic expectations yeah. when it comes to this, right? So we're we're trying to also, I think, like reimagine what nutrition and and good nutrition principles can be. So I'll say what you're doing a majority of the time is what you should look at and not sweat the small stuff. But I also feel like there there comes a discussion of things like, for example, protein powder. You know, protein powder is, you know, usually it's like a derivative of some kind of other product. So dairy product, for example, milk, we're going to take the whey out and make that a whey protein. Uh, does that mean that it has all of the ingredients that a, a whole product like a like milk would have? No. Um, but it does potentially for some people have some advantages. Um, and of course, there are many different kinds of, of protein powders. It's just one example. I think we want to look at um, the amino acid quality overall of what we're getting. So are we getting complete sources of protein, um, especially from the essential amino acid standpoint, since branch chain amino acids get a lot of pop, a lot of press in terms of muscle muscle protein synthesis and growth. We know that Leucine, which is one of the three branch chain amino acids, and one of the nine total essential amino acids, is very important to trigger that muscle protein synthesis. Hmm. However, all nine of the essential amino acids are required to then carry out right. muscle protein synthesis. So we need the trigger from leucine, that's true, but we also need all nine. So looking at things like Overall, what is the essential amino acid quality? Are we eating complete proteins? And if a food is not a complete protein, are we, com you know, we're eating these foods that do kind of combine together and create a more um, complete profile, right? Mm -hmm. and, and again, not sweating the small stuff here and saying like it has to happen exactly at the same time. But 
for most people, that could be combining two foods together on their plate, and that's going to be fine. Um, so we want to look at the the leucine content as well, especially if we're interested in building more muscle and just making sure that we're getting enough of a serving yes. um, of that of that protein. So knowing that we need, I'll say, you know, the numbers range depending on who you're talking about. We're kind of looking at about 30 grams of higher quality protein per meal. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, not stressing about, hey, I had to use a protein powder for a lot of people that are just getting started and they're like, I don't know where to start. I am overwhelmed. How do I begin? I'm like, can we do a protein powder before or after we train? And just add that in. That could be an extra 20, 25 grams of good quality protein per day. And we've moved from 80 to 100 grams. Like that. That's what makes a difference. Yeah. Ultimately. Absolutely. So small steps, doing um, what's convenient for the person as well. For a lot of people, like protein powder or something that the, you know, protein bar can help close the gap and just provide a snack there. Again, we'd like to see that the majority of what people are taking in is good quality, as best mm-hmm. as we can afford and things like that. But not not letting perfection or <laughs> the stress of like, I'm not doing it right or I'm not doing it perfectly enough overcome the intention, which is to just increase the protein intake overall, which a lot of people do struggle with. Yeah. And that analogy kind of reminds me of one of those popular article titles you see pop up about what's the best time of day to work out? And <laughs> inevitably, the answer is whenever you're going to do it consistently. <laughs> so it's kind of like that with protein. Yeah. If whey protein is what brings you over the the goal, then that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Or, you know, a, a protein um Either you're going to put some yogurt, you know, in the morning alongside your breakfast and you're yeah. going to get an extra maybe 15 grams of protein. Amazing. You can have a snack in between your breakfast and your workout. Or maybe you do start introducing something after you train because you know it's going to be five hours between then and dinner. Just starting to look for the small places to fill in the gaps. And if you have to eat a protein bar or protein chips or a protein shake, it's okay. <laughs> um, you know, don't, don't stress about it, but also, you know, over time, is there a way that you can work something a little bit, you know, potentially actually less expensive in because for some of those products, they are quite expensive, right? That's right. Um, so we have to balance things like convenience, learning new habits, um, assessing our environment and the supports that we have and like all the other things that have to change. A lot of times people will say, well, I just have to eat more protein. And then they come back and they're like, I don't really know how to make it happen because we have to think about things like, do I need to do a little bit of meal prep? Do I have to do some extra shopping or have some things in the freezer? And those are extra steps and extra habits that need to be considered. We have to build the systems and the structures to support those things that we want to do. So it sounds simple on the surface, just increase your protein intake. And again, it could be something as like, we'll meet you where you're at and let's just get you a protein, a protein shake for now just to get started. And then we'll work on building some of those other more time-consuming, I guess, habits or things into your day Mm -hmm. so that you have some other sources available. And when people are getting the right sources and the right amount of food, I think that has a huge impact on motivation because one of the problems with low energy balance or not eating enough, under eating, dieting, all those those, uh, issues is that 
sense of lethargy. Just, mm-hmm. I don't want to go to the gym. I don't really feel like it. Has that been something you've seen a lot of the people that you work with is they finally get enough <laughs> enough nutrients, enough energy, and all of a sudden they have that extra pep in their step, so to speak. All the time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's easy. I, and I say easy because it's common, but it's easy for people to think, I'm just not motivated. What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And they start to, you know, self-blame, self-judge, um, go down that road of of that whatever mental or emotional things that have been an issue for them in the past. You know, I'm a failure. I'm never going to get this right. Why can't I ever stick to anything? And that in itself becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. And more often than not, when I work with students and I have them look at, well, you know, like what is, they'll say, well, I eat, you know, I know what healthy foods are. And then again, we'll look at sort of quantity patterning throughout the day, those sorts of things. And they're like, oh, I don't think I'm eating enough. And so we'll start looking at slowly increasing quantity in a really um, methodical way and the least, I guess, scary way for a lot of people. And it's incredible how fast things start to turn around with energy levels. And then that begets things like motivation. Because motivation is a fleeting thing. But when you're exhausted and you don't have the energy to go out after work and and do your workout or, you know, you've got other things going on and it feels so so overwhelming, it's one of the first things to go. And even things like mood changes, mood disturbances are part of that low energy availability milieu, if you will, of of, I guess, symptoms, if we want to call it that, or signs that you're potentially in that state. So we um, we also subconsciously start to move around a lot less. We That's we don't right. fidget as much. We are just we're like, oh, you know, forget it. I'll I'll walk to the mailbox tomorrow. And I'm a huge proponent that rest is important, and we do not need to feel guilty for resting or relaxing. However, when this is a big change from your baseline. Or it's something that's affecting, it's not like your choice. It's like you feel like you have no other choice because you're so tired. Because you know what? I love a, a good chill and watch Netflix all day. But if it's, if you choose it, it feels way better than if it's your only choice because you're so drained. Yeah. Right. And conversely, there's nothing better than the feeling like I had earlier today of walking into the gym and picking up the weight that I was expecting to lift and saying to myself, oh, this is way too light. You know, yeah. I, I need to go up. That yes. is incredible when you have that burst of energy where you feel ready yeah. to be able to lift more, to do more, to push more. Yep. And if people are chronically in that low energy balance or under eating, they don't really get those bursts of energy because they're constantly playing catch up physiologically, actually mentally too. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it's not just the physical, you know, uh, signs, right? So like, oh, I don't feel like training or, oh, I'm just like extra sore or that weight that I normally can do feels way heavier and I don't know what's wrong. One of the things that was happening to me and why I eventually sought out the help of a sports nutrition coach 10 years ago was all of a sudden I went from somebody who really loved exercise and and training. And again, I've been an athlete since I was a kid. So like for me, physical movement is just, I love it. It's just joy. And it just changed. I thought, I'm so tired. I don't want to go. 
Um, again, it was a, a change in the in the be- in the baseline of what was normal for me. You know, having a lot of mood swings, um, those sorts of things. So it's it's not always just a oh my recovery and I'm sore or my strength output is a little bit lower than normal. It it's oftentimes those sort of psychological, mental, emotional things too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Although the physical, you have an expression I think from a friend. What was it? The toilet drop <laughs> challenge. <laughs> Toilet trust fall. <laughs> toilet trust fall. When you're so sore, you yes. can't physically lower your body. <laughs> you got to kind of do this and hope you'll end. That's my friend Claudette uh, Zepeda, who is uh, an amazing, amazing friend of mine. And um, yeah, the toilet trust fall. So DOMS or delayed onset muscle soreness is that soreness that you get when you've done, you know, you've just done too much and everything that you do is painful you know, sitting down to to the toilet for for one example. <laughs> so, um, interestingly enough, protein intake is one of the things that's associated with you know how much DOMS people tend to get. So there have been studies where they've looked at people's level of DOMS or soreness after training based on how much protein they're including um, post workout or in their diet overall, and how. That's one of the signs they're not getting enough protein is that you're sore all the time. You're, you know, you're not recovering. That's persistent. It lingers. Uh, one of my students, in fact, had a, a hamstring uh, rupture about Oof. six years ago. She had surgery to repair. She did all her physical therapy. She's still trying to stay active, uh, but was significantly under eating. And as a result of eating more, <laughs> including eating more protein, her soreness when her pain and soreness went away. Amazing. After six years, there was nothing magical that she changed. She didn't change anything in her training or her rehab or any. She just started providing her body the necessary building blocks to yeah. repair and recover that tissue. Well, one of the myths that you bust quite well, I would say, is that idea that if you're not in absolute agony, mm-hmm. your workout wasn't worth it or your workout wasn't, mm. you know, effective. But you have guidance for programs for workouts that are not designed to make you feel <laughs> in utter pain. Yeah. Um, and you can recover from and maybe do another strength training workout in two or three days. Here's the thing. The benefit that we get from strength training is going to come from what we do over the long haul, over the big picture, whether we're talking about several months or several years. It is not going to be, one workout is one, think of it like one data point, but what we're looking at is the trend over time. So absolutely flogging yourself and pushing yourself because you believe that the soreness is what means that it was an effective workout is a little bit misguided and is not setting you up for long-term sustainability and success. So, for example, the toilet trust fall example. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and I b- believe it. Believe me, I did this uh, this summer. I did a workout that I, I hadn't done this movement in a long time. And I was like, my triceps were sore for about a week. And I know that. So I'm like, it's going to go away. It's going to be fine. However, somebody more novice might just say, if I'm going to be in pain like this all the time, like, or I can't actually physically do another workout for a week, then what's the point? Like, why bother? I don't like this. This is uncomfortable. I don't want to feel like that again. So 
to believe that we have to go to that level in order for the workout to be effective is just not true. And the flip side of that, I'll say, I hear this all the time from women who eventually work themselves up to the point of, you know, maybe like five by five, they're doing barbell squats or deadlifts or overhead press. This is how I train most of the time now. And they get done. And it was hard. You know, it was challenging. They're, you know, they're like putting some effort into the reps. But they get done and they think, I don't, I don't feel sore. Did it work? <laughs> was it effective? And so again, we've come to associate either the, the, um, the burning from the hydrogen ions that we get as you know, a result of like our muscles trying to produce fast energy, uh, what some people would call lactic acid, although that's incorrect. So, but we get that kind of like that burn, right? Um, we don't always get the burn from things like low, steady, heavy strength training. Um, and it doesn't mean that those reps were useless. We just have to adjust our expectations of how we're noticing progress. You might be a little bit sore and that's fine, but I think remembering that you don't have to be writhing on the floor in pain, um, experiencing the toilet trust fall <laughs> in order for the workout <laughs> to be effective. What you want to look at over time is, are my weight progressing? Am I feeling more fluid in this movement? You know, I'm feeling more confident in the movement. I'm feeling like it's more efficient or effective. Uh, you know, I'm able to maybe do some more reps if that's something you want to do. There's lots of ways to progress. But the biggest one is going to be, am I getting stronger over time? And just knowing that we might not feel <laughs> those, those super sore moments and that totally fine. Doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean you have to do something drastic and abandon ship. Um, and, and so certainly it doesn't mean that you have to go do more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about what lifting heavy means, because I know there's some subjective interpretation, <laughs> you know, a beginner who's never lifted a weight, <laughs> it's going to be sufficient for them to lift a lighter weight and feel a lot of challenge from that versus yeah. somebody who's been competitive powerlifting for 10 years. Of so course. maybe if, if you're somebody who isn't really into weight training, never done it before, but you know that it's good for you and it appeals to you. How do you define that for yourself in a way that feels safe? Yeah, 100%. So I think the first thing is that it, whatever weight you pick up has to feel like somewhat of a challenge. And what I mean by that is if you've got dumbbells and you're kind of like doing your thing and you're like, hey, what did you do this weekend? And you're just kind of going through the motions. If you feel like you're going through the motions, but like nothing is happening, it's probably too light. Similarly, if you pick up a weight and the first two reps, you're you're all over, you're like feel super unstable or you're all over the place or you're really having to contort your body to try to lift that weight, it's probably too heavy. So we used to believe that the ranges for building strength, building muscle, and building muscular endurance were all very defined and rigid. For example, if we did anything less than six reps, that was purely going to be devoted to strength. Anything between six and 12 reps was just going to help our muscle to grow or have muscle hypertrophy. And anything over that would be for muscular endurance. The idea being, you can't lift a super, super heavy weight for 30 reps. <laughs> so, you know, it's just going to, it's kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. What we know now is that those, those lines between those ranges are blurry. So somebody who's newer to lifting 
might get both a muscle building effect and a strength effect from a, a wider range of repetitions. So I like to recommend that people who are starting out get enough repetitions that you start to get proficiency with the movement. So if you're only doing sets of three, it's good, you're, it's going to take you a little bit longer. I'm not saying that's bad or wrong, but we also need to get you enough exposure to the movement. The mechanics I, of it. Yeah, 100% to build your efficiency, to help you learn where you are in space, to help you learn how to brace and how to move through the movement and um, how to use your feet on the floor and, and all these things that we do in lifting. For a lot of people, and working between that anywhere from like five to 12 range of repetitions is going to be a pretty solid place to land in terms of challenge and in terms of, in my opinion, giving them enough exposure and enough repetitions to a movement to build proficiency. So, you know, the science, again, is a little bit sort of like we can do lighter weights. The key is we have to do them with enough reps that we get fatigued. Yes. So, if you pick up a weight and it's light, it doesn't mean you're not going to get a benefit from it. However, we start to experience things like we need more time mm -hmm. to complete those. Like, let's say we're going to do, I don't know, four sets of 20 of five or six movements. Now we're talking about, even if we have a, a shorter rest period, we're just talking about extending the length of our workout. Mm -hmm. um, does that mean that it's a bad thing? Not necessarily. We just have to pick a weight where we're getting tired. Mm -hmm at those rep ranges, which a lot of people find is actually a little bit more difficult over time. And so starting to work in a variety of different reps and set patterns and things like that. But we tend to find, at least with dumbbell work, sometimes people will get to a point where they're realizing they want to maybe move up to a barbell because they can simply load more on the bar. But I'm really a big fan of mixing both dumbbell and barbell work because I like them for different things. And of course, depending on the person and, and what their body needs. Yeah. Um, what and the they, space, the gym, yeah. what they have access to. 100%. You can still get a really amazing strength workout with minimal, you know, equipment, a couple sets of dumbbells, um, obviously using your body weight for some things if that's appropriate. And, you know, two or three times a week. I'm like, that's not overcomplicated, especially yes. if you want to do other things like run, cycle, kayak, hike, yeah. whatever, whatever our other thing is. Yeah, snowshoe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should have like, given some more cold weather examples there. It's all good. <laughs> uh, I want to be mindful of your time. I know you've got a packed schedule. How are you for time? Do you have a little more to yeah. go over the hour? Sure. Is that okay? Yeah. Awesome. Well, one of my favorite episodes that you had recently was a discussion about potentially skipping the bathroom scale. And this is controversial for some people because they feel that the scale holds them accountable or that it measures their value in some way or that they'll completely fall off their program if they stop weighing themselves. Would you mind talking a little bit about how the scale can get in the way of our mm -hmm. ability to feel at ease with things and challenge ourselves and think beyond the number? Yeah, it's... um. Hashtag is complicated. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it starts by being curious. Um, that's where I would encourage people to start. So just staying open-minded and listening to conversations or just getting curious about why it's, why it's so important to you. And a lot of people 
do not have a neutral relationship with the scale. Some people truly, and I envy them because I still don't know if I'm to this point and I don't weigh myself um, hardly ever. You know, I'll go to the doctor or whatnot and, and get weighed. But for me, that I'm okay with that. But I don't do it on a daily or weekly or monthly basis even. And I, I think the, the biggest thing is to start just getting curious about, is it truly neutral or do you feel a certain sort of way when you get off that scale or you see the number? And that's a pretty big indicator of whether or not that thing is that neutral data point that you think it is, or it's having the potential to sort of derail the positive progress that you're making in other areas. So I guess that's where I would just encourage people to begin is with an inquiry there. Um, I always say you don't have to do anything right away. You don't. <laughs> Some people do love the idea of taking the scale with a sledgehammer. <laughs> My friend Summer Inanen was the, one of the first people I ever saw do a photo shoot. This is many years ago where she just, she's Canadian, but she got that rage out somehow. It was like, <laughs> you know, um, smashing the scale with a sledgehammer. Some people are like, I'm not quite ready for that yet. Maybe I can put it in another room for a while and just make some space. So you get to do what's comfortable for you. And I'm not suggesting like you have to do something drastic. But I think what happens for a lot of athletic women is they start to do things like feeding themselves better. Mm-hmm. They're doing things like building muscle. And there can be changes that happen in your body. You right? Muscle is a tissue and it's going to take up space. And you're, you may see that maybe a certain item of clothing gets tighter. For me, I used to be a teacher, right? And I had these like cute little blouses with like, cap sleeves and they weren't stretchy material and there got to be a point where I was like I can't I can't actually get this on anymore <laughs> because for so many years I had under eaten and I was actually losing a lot of muscle mass yes. because of that because I was doing so much endurance training and racing and not enough fueling so I was losing muscle um And so there can be changes, even when you're happy with how you feel, you're like, but crap, now like, like my pants are tighter. I need a bigger size of pants. I'm building more muscle. Like I've got like, oh, I got a booty now. And you're feeling great about that because you're feeling strong and you're feeling confident and capable and um, feeling better in your body and, and having more energy and all these positive things. But you either get on the scale or maybe pull out those like skinny jeans that you've just been holding on to. Because like, there's just this magical thing that's going to happen. And maybe your body is not following suit with what you thought was going to happen. And so I see this a lot where women are feeling like so much better in so many ways. Like I'm sleeping better. My mood is better. I'm getting stronger. I picked up that heavier barbell. I got a PR. I got my pull up. I mean, you name it, right? I'm like having a much better relationship with food. I'm much more satisfied. My energy levels are higher. And they're like, but I'm just curious what the scale says. And this has happened with a lot of my students. And we have to have a conversation about it. But they're like, I got on the scale and it didn't say what I wanted it to say. And now I'm feeling like everything I did was just, what was the point? And mm-hmm. that's the point at which I feel like if you have that experience, you've got to stop and just start asking yourself some questions. You might not get clear answers right away. But I think I would caution people who feel like 
I got on the scale. It didn't tell me what I wanted, I wanted to hear. So I'm going to abandon every, all these positive changes that I'm making. And the tough part is, is that so many women, especially under eat for so long, <laughs> that it's just, it's not like once we actually start nourishing our bodies, providing nutrients and fuel and seeing the, the positive benefit of that in all these other ways, we still get messed up in the head about it. We still feel like, I, but I'm not getting smaller. There must be something wrong. And so I didn't actually mention this on the podcast. And I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, oh, I wish I had said this. But from endurance training and, and then leaving that world behind, learning about better nutrition and lifting weights, yes, my body is bigger than it was before. Mm-hmm. You know, I just... Um, was that something that you uh, were concerned about at all? Or were you, were you so happy about the other changes that it was relatively easy to accept? Um, I think, again, there were those moments where I was like, well, I need new shirts now for work. Um, <laughs> but it was, oh, it, to me, it was, it was like, it's okay because it's worth it because of everything else I've gained in the process. Yeah. You know, um, I, I've just, I, I was, it's more like I'm more of my, you know, and I mean, natural body type has just never been. My, one of my sisters that, I, you know, was very close to me, HB, was always like very much, much more thinner than me. That's just her natural body type. And I always wanted to be like her. And it's just, I'm just built like a, like a tank, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I finally, I think, came to accept that I'm just me and, and that's how I look. And I feel strong, like my health is good, my blood markers and my, you know, my markers of health and wellness. And, I, you know, it, it just to me was something that I think I came to accept as part of that process. But I came to appreciate more that I didn't have to live in this world of restriction and that all of the things I left behind that were really plaguing me, you know, in terms of the the psychological stuff, you know, mood things and just this always struggle and focus of thinking about my weight. I mean, that was one of the things that opened up space for me to think about other hobbies or other career, like another career or yeah, was the brain space, right? And so I think it is highly complex. It there's not one single answer. Everybody has a different lived experience. You might be in a bigger body and you have a way different lived experience than me and you've been treated differently um, by society and your family or your friends. And it, there's just so many things that go into body image and um, how society, the systems of society and, and, you know, just all of the stuff that we experience. And so I feel like it's just one of those things where if you do choose to get on the scale, try to keep things in perspective and try to resist the urge to go, well, I guess I'm going to have to get back on that really restrictive diet again. Mm-hmm. You got to stop and think about what are all the things that are going in a positive direction. Yeah. Because that one negative thing, because we have that negativity bias as humans, is going to get it has the potential to to kind of uproot this really positive trajectory that you were on. Yeah. And weight fluctuates all the time for so many different reasons. Yes. You know? Yeah. And I fear, too, people get caught up in the body fat percentage thing, like the DEXA scan, or even the clothing size, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. 
Is this something you think is getting any better compared to when we were in high school? I want to believe it's getting better. I want to see signs that people in general appreciate different sizes of bodies and what they can do. But I still feel like, for example, Instagram tends to be dominated with a lot of images of conventionally slender people, Mm -hmm. uh, men and women for that matter. And it's frustrating to feel like, will this always be just the way it is? I was having a conversation with somebody uh, recently, and we we taught we lamented <laughs> growing up when we did and seeing the things that we did and the un, the very unrealistic thinness, especially at that time. Although I think we're seeing a seeing the pendulum swing back toward that direction, unfortunately. But also, we didn't have social media to to put as many. This is the sheer volume of images that we see. And to your point, the way the algorithm biases toward a particular body aesthetic or body ideal or racial I- racial biases and able biases and, yeah. and like just, I mean, that's a whole other episode, I feel like. But it, it is, I think in some ways it's getting better. I think we're at least willing to have some conversations in some pocket. And again, I think for me, I look at my Instagram and I'm like, I'm in my happy bubble. I, you know, I see, <laughs> I see more body diversity in my fitness feed and my posts because I'm trying to put it there. You're deliberate about it. And then I go to the explore page and I think, oh my goodness, yes, yeah, Crivens. Um, where I'm on my, <laughs> I'm on my, my Facebook, and so Facebook shows you reels now, and I'm just like, why? It's it's the same stuff. And so I'm hopeful that we're, we're continuing to have conversations about it. And I actually think it's being driven more by younger people, mm-hmm. um, frankly, than necessarily our generation. I, I think there are some of us who are trying. <laughs> um, and again, we're fighting against longer, you know, longer lifetime or longer decades, I guess we'll call it that, of this kind of diet culture and and programming by society and seeing these images. So I am hopeful that things are going going to continue to shift and change, but I also see that the amount of content on social media that's not even just biasing toward a specific body size or body type, but we're we're now, right, it's like Photoshop in your pocket. And so we're now just changing our images to fit that ideal and then putting that up. So now what we're seeing is an even more distorted version of reality where in the past, you used to have to be able to use Photoshop, you know, maybe be a a photographer or a magazine editor. And those images that were being adjusted were more quote-unquote professional. But now that social media is the media and that power is in people's hands, we have Facetune and like the body... I don't even know what they're called. Like, I guess I'm showing my age, but like these body manipulation apps. And I think the the one thing I, I've, I've always maintained when I worked with photographers is like, do not sh- Photoshop my body. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to change how I look. I want to try to just show up as me. And, and to me, that's important. And I also realize that for certain people, that maybe doesn't feel like it's something that is accessible to them. They feel pressure to to do that so that they are seen as, again, heavy air quotes here, more acceptable. And in the fitness industry, there is absolutely a double standard 
where we're like, we want more authenticity. Hmm. And then people show up as they're themselves, as, you know, not having the highest levels of privilege, right, of however that shows up, thin body privilege, white privilege, youth privilege, able-bodied privilege, et cetera. And then we're like, but not like that. You know, you're not credible. You're not fit looking enough. Mm-hmm. So there's an absolute double standard in the fitness space for sure when it comes to what we say we want and then what society claps back with or even the industry is like, well, but they don't, they don't look fit. And this is where I'm always like, but fitness isn't a look. <laughs> fitness <laughs> is your ability to, to, to perform the task at hand, right? How fit you are for that task is what fitness is. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it's very complex. And I, I mean, I, I hope it does continue to get better. But I don't know if the data is showing that. Um, it's, it's not from what I can see in terms of just body image and kids and uh, adults and body image and pressures and disordered eating. And it's not going in a positive direction yet. Well... I appreciate what you're doing. I think you're making a difference. (laughs) Thank you. And I can say that you don't look interchangeable with anybody else on social media that I follow. You have a very distinct quality that I would love to see that from other fitness influencers. And I'm I'm sure they're out there too. And maybe I haven't looked hard enough. But (laughs) um, like you say, when you go to the Explorer page, you're typically fed some content that it's it's a little disturbing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But Let's say you're you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, this is kind of overwhelming. There's all these pressures and expectations on my body. And what do you say to people who just want to get started? Yeah, I think what I try to recommend for people is that you work with somebody in person, even if it's for a couple of sessions. And I'm I'm very try to be very cognizant of the fact that you maybe you live in a very remote place or maybe right now you're you're funding like the money that you have um you know, what you can afford isn't quite there so i just i want to be mindful of that but if it's possible for you to work in person with someone for even a couple of sessions and just feel more comfortable in the environment especially if you're going to go to a gym um i feel like at home Maybe feels more comfortable, but also you're you're really on your own. A really good coach or trainer can work with you individually or in a small group of people and help you feel more comfortable in that setting. Help learn your way around the weight room. I feel like that for me. I was like, I don't know how to use any of this <laughs> stuff, right? Um, even you know, sometimes uh, I'll post things like how you how you can unload a bar easily. I love that one. You know, and so and, practical. Yeah, but it's not always the explicit things that you're told. So I think learning a way around the equipment, how to use it, um, just having somebody to look at your form and technique can be incredibly helpful. There are also programs out there that are virtual that are designed to help people start out at the very beginning. Uh, Stronger by the day, maybe that's not what it's called. I'm going to probably mess this up, but um, Meg Squats has a program that's for very much for beginners to teach you all the things that you would need to know and present it in a virtual setting. Again, in my opinion, not the same thing as having somebody there in it live and in person, but it could be an option for people is to find a, a program that's really designed to help 
steward you through those early weeks or months of learning it because you might get to a point where you feel like, I just don't know if I'm doing it right. And I see this a lot. I used to coach Olympic weightlifting in a gym and, you know, constantly, especially women would come in and they were always doubting themselves. You know, I'm not doing this right. I feel like I'm going to hurt myself. You know, I'm not sure if I'm doing this the right way. And sometimes, of course, we were there, but had they been on their own, maybe they would have stopped because they would doubt themselves. And all I hear from that, when I hear that is internalized. It's internalized from what we've been told, mm-hmm. right? So people are always telling us, be careful. You're, hurt, you're gonna hurt yourself. You know, um, you're not doing it right. Like, So we could <laughs> talk about that whole other element. But I feel like if you're just starting out, you know, you you don't need to do every single day. That's the other thing I ran into a lady in a in a boba shop getting tea, boba tea. And <laughs> she started asking me questions and we started chit-chatting about weightlifting. And she was like, you know, I've just never stuck to it because I couldn't make it into the gym six days a week. And I was like, I'm going to let you in on a, on a secret. Two really well done days are probably all you need to get started. You know, two days you go in there, do a couple full body, you know, circuits or or just some full body exercises, you know, get in there, try to to make sure your, your effort is high and you're feeling like it's challenging. You're going to get so much more out of that and doing that consistently than going, I went six days this week. Then I had to toilet trust fall and now I'm so sore. <laughs> I skipped it. I skipped another three weeks and then I didn't make it back in until three weeks after that. So start with less and add potentially over time. But we're really looking at, you can get a ton of benefit from two or three sessions a week. And I'm talking like, if you're really focused, 20, 30 minutes, you're not like me. I'm always on my phone, like, you know, Instagramming. (laughs) So it takes me longer. I'm filming. But get in there, you know, manage your uh, rest periods, right? And, And get it done. And you'd be surprised how much benefit you're going to get from that. So don't believe that you have to do the most <laughs> right away um, or really ever to to get to some level of strength or building that muscle. Um, in fact, less is probably more as long as you're getting in there and, and it's appropriately loaded. Um, so that's the other thing I would say is you don't have to do it every single day. Mm-hmm. Right? So don't let that intimidate you either. That's so important. And it builds its own momentum, right? Because it's so much more manageable. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's and, and actually, for me, I find it's a lot less boring because you have a different space and it's you're not having to go every single day. I find that routine is a little bit overwhelming. And I don't know exactly where that comes from. Maybe it was the old bodybuilding culture mm-hmm. from the days of yore. But mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. You can get a lot of benefit mm-hmm. just twice a week under an hour which is pretty amazing. Um, For people who wanted to work directly with you, you mentioned some of your students. Mm -hmm. Is that still a possibility? Are you currently taking on potential clients and should they reach out via your website? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find out more details about what I offer at my website, stephgodro.com. We have a group program, which is called Strength Nutrition Unlocked, which is really there to help you follow a proven framework to help you focus because the world of, of nutrition and training can be so overwhelming and distracting. So we are going to help you focus on what's going to move you forward the best um, in terms of building your strength, making sure you have more energy, 
seeing that muscle mass that you want, you're having your performance in and out of the gym be better. And so that one you can find out more information. And then I also offer one-on-one coaching is more customized and bespoke to what the person uh, needs. But I tend to work with people who are athletic or they want to get back into it and they've had a break and just looking for a little bit more guidance on um, especially the habit change and all of the other things that go into the implementation and consistency. So you can also find more information about that on the site. Perfect. It will include all those links in the show notes as well. I'm curious what's coming next for you. Do you have any big <laughs> projects on the horizon? You know, for the first time in a long time, I can say I don't. Which is, <laughs> This year, this past year has really been about continuing to iterate on my group program and make that the best, like the best program in the world for this particular thing. Um, I'm never satisfied and I always think things can be better, but I, I've i taken, you know, I've done a lot of pivots in my career over the, maybe the last 10 years and they've been kind of small pivots, but I finally feel like I am, I'm doing exactly what I'm meant to do. And and I love it. So I'm always like in there and coaching and and tweaking things. And I'm continuing to deliver on that program. Um, I do have something in my back pocket that I'm thinking about doing in 2023. And I'm not quite ready to put it out there yet. Because if I decide I'm not going to do it, then I'll feel silly. But um, yeah, potentially a program designed specifically at um, training, like the lifting part for women over 40. I guess I'll give you that much. But um We'll see if that comes around. But for now, it's just continuing to be excellent at these things that I'm already doing, feeling like I can I can iterate, I can make things better, I can deliver a really amazing experience and help people get the transformation that they're looking for. And so that's all on my that's all I have on my docket for now. I'm gonna take a, a break with the podcast probably at the end of the year, just have our holiday break and come back early next year with some new stuff. And Nice. Yeah, continuing to to try to put that stuff out there that's really going to help women, especially over 40. Well, I have to say again, phenomenal work. Your podcast is incredibly helpful and informative, and I'm going to recommend it to anyone who will listen because it is just one of the most on-point podcasts about a topic that I feel needs to be talked about far more. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Steph. It has been a true pleasure chatting with you today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you love access ideas, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about the podcast too. Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.